classic podcast for my mother. She read to me when I was little, so now I'm returning the favour, and you're welcome to listen along. It's Sunday, and that means I'm reading a classic. Thursdays are for offbeat stuff, but whatever I'm reading, it's always great writing. Tonight, I'm reading from the 1983 non-fiction book Class by American Paul Fussell. It is a classic work, presented as, quote, a painfully accurate guide through the American status system, end quote. Paul Fussell was a California boy, born 1924. He served during World War II and went on to become a writer of books and essays on interesting topics, but for me, class is his gem of great writing. Although I can also recommend another of his works, Bad or The Dumbing of America, published 1991. That was another triumph. Briefly, Fussell's theory on class in America is that there are nine, with a strange extra category number ten. The categories are, in descending order, top out of sight, upper, upper middle, then middle, high proletarian, mid proletarian, low proletarian, then destitute, then bottom out of sight, and the strange extra category number 10 is category X. It is a class that exists outside the class system. When Class was published, it became an instant classic, and it was reviewed and argued about everywhere. My review of this little book is that it is an absolute gem, three thumbs up from the Nudie Reads podcast. I'm going to read an abridged version of the opening chapter with a couple of snippets from chapter two to give you a taste, and I do hope you go shopping for this little book. It's still in print and worth every penny, even now, almost 40 years later. Let's begin. Chapter 1. A Touchy Subject Although most Americans sense that they live within an extremely complicated system of social classes and suspect that much of what is thought and done here is prompted by considerations of status, the subject has remained murky and always touchy. You can outrage people today simply by mentioning social class, very much the way sipping tea among the aspidistras a century ago, you could silence a party by adverting too openly to sex. When, recently, asked what I am writing, I have answered a book about social class in America. People tend first to straighten their ties and sneak a glance at their cuffs to see how far fraying has advanced there. Then, a few minutes later, they silently get up and walk away. It's not just that I am feared as a class spy. It's as if I had said, I am working on a book urging the beating to death of baby whales using the dead bodies of baby seals. Since I have been writing this book, I have experienced many times the awful truth of R. H. Tawney's perception in his book Equality of 1931. Quote, the word class is fraught with unpleasing associations, so that to linger upon it is apt to be interpreted as the symptom of a perverted mind and a jaundiced spirit. 
end quote. Especially in America, where the idea of class is notably embarrassing. In his book, Inequality in an Age of Decline, from 1980, the sociologist Paul Blumberg goes so far as to call it, quote, America's forbidden thought, end quote. Indeed, people often blow their tops if the subject is even broached. One woman, asked by a couple of interviewers if she thought there were social classes in this country, answered, quote, It's the dirtiest thing I've ever heard of, end quote. And a man asked the same question, got so angry that he blurted out, quote, Social class should be exterminated, end quote. Actually, you reveal a great deal about your social class by the amount of annoyance or fury you feel when the subject is brought up. A tendency to get very anxious suggests that you are middle class and nervous about slipping down a rung or two. On the other hand, upper class people love the topic to come up. The more attention paid to the matter, the better off they seem to be. Proletarians generally don't mind discussions of the subject because they know they can do little to alter their class identity. Thus, the whole class matter is likely to seem like a joke to them. The upper classes fatuous in their empty aristocratic pretentiousness. The middles loathsome in their anxious gentility. It is the middle class that is highly class-sensitive and sometimes class-scared to death. A representative of that class left his mark on a library copy of Russell Lyons' The Tastemakers of 1954. Next to a passage patronising the insecure, decorating taste of the middle class and satirically contrasting its artistic behaviour to that of those more sophisticated classes, this offended reader scrawled in large capitals, quote, bull, full stop, shit. Exclamation point, end quote. A hopelessly middle-class man, not a woman, surely, if ever I saw one. If you reveal your class by your outrage at the very topic, you reveal it also by the way you define the thing that's outraging you. At the bottom, people tend to believe that class is defined by the amount of money you have. In the middle, People grant that money has something to do with it, but think education and the kind of work you do almost equally important. Nearer the top, people perceive that taste, values, ideas, style and behaviour are indispensable criteria of class, regardless of money or occupation or education. Class distinctions in America are so complicated and subtle that foreign visitors often miss the nuances and sometimes even the existence of a class structure. So powerful is the fable of equality, as Frances Trollope called it, when she toured America in 1832, so embarrassed is the government to confront the subject. In the thousands of measurements pouring from its bureaus, social class is not officially even recognised that it's easy for visitors not to notice the way the class system works. In this book, I'm going to deal with some of the visible and audible signs of social class, but I will be sticking largely with those that reflect choice. That means that I will not be considering matters of race or, except now and then, religion or politics. Race is visible, but it is not chosen. 
religion and politics, while usually chosen, don't show, except for the occasional front yard shrine or car bumper sticker. When you look at a person, you don't see Roman Catholic or liberal. You see hand-painted necktie or crappy polyester shirt. You hear parameters or in regards to. In attempting to make sense of indicators like these, I have been guided by perception and feel rather than by any method that could be deemed scientific. Believing with Arthur Marwick, author of Class, Image and Reality of 1980, that, quote, class is too serious a subject to leave to the social scientists, end quote. It should be a serious subject in America, especially because here we lack a convenient system of inherited titles, ranks and honours, and each generation has to define the hierarchies all over again. The society changes faster than any other on earth and the American, almost uniquely, can be puzzled about where in the society he stands. The things that conferred class in the 1930s, white linen, golf knickers, chrome cocktail shakers, vests with white piping, are, to put it mildly, unlikely to do so today. Belonging to a rapidly changing rather than a traditional society, Americans find knowing where you stand harder than do most Europeans. And a yet more pressing matter, making it, assumes crucial importance here. It seems no accident that, as the British philosopher Anthony Quinton says, quote, the book of etiquette in its modern form is largely an American product, the great names being Emily Post and Amy Vanderbilt. End quote. The reason is that the United States is preeminently the venue of newcomers, with a special need to place themselves advantageously and to get on briskly. Quote, Some newcomers, says Quinton, are geographical, that is, immigrants. Others are economic, the newly rich. Others again, chronological, the young. End quote. All are faced with the problem inseparable from the operations of a mass society. Earning respect. The comic Rodney Dangerfield, complaining that he don't get none, belongs to the same national species as that studied by John Adams, who says as early as 1805, quote, The rewards in this life are esteem and admiration of others. The punishments are neglect and contempt. The desire of the esteem of others is as real a want of nature as hunger, and the neglect and contempt of the world as severe a pain as the gout or stone. End quote. The special hazards attending the class situation in America, where movement appears so fluid, and where the prizes seem available to anyone who's lucky, are disappointment, and, following close on that, envy. Because the myth conveys the impression that you can readily earn your way upward, disillusion and bitterness are particularly strong when you find yourself trapped in a class system you've been half-persuaded isn't important. When, in early middle life, 
some people discover that certain limits have been placed on their capacity to ascend socially by such apparent irrelevances as heredity, early environment, and the social class of their immediate forebears, they go into something like despair, which, if generally secret, is no less destructive. De Tocqueville perceived the psychic dangers. Quote, In democratic times, he granted, enjoyments are more intense than in the ages of aristocracy, and the number of those who partake in them is vastly larger. End quote. But he added, in egalitarian atmospheres, quote, man's hopes and desires are often blasted, the soul is more stricken and perturbed, and care itself more keen. End quote. And after blasted hopes, envy, the force of sheer class envy behind vile and even criminal behaviour in this country, the result in part of disillusion over the official myth of classlessness, should never be underestimated. The person who, parking his attractive car in a large city, has returned to find his windows smashed and his radio aerials snapped off, will understand what I mean. Despite our public embrace of political and judicial equality, in individual perception and understanding, much of which we refrain from publicising, we arrange things vertically and insist on crucial differences in value. Regardless of what we say about equality, I think everyone at some point comes to feel like Oscar Wilde, who said, quote, The brotherhood of man is not a mere poet's dream. It is a most depressing and humiliating reality. End quote. It's as if in our heart of hearts we don't want agglomerations, but distinctions. Analysis and separation we find interesting. Synthesis, boring. Although it is disinclined to designate a hierarchy of social classes, the federal government seems to admit that if in law we are all equal, in virtually all other ways we are not. Thus, the 18 grades into which it divides its civil service employees, from grade 1, at the bottom, messenger, up through 2, mail clerk, 5, secretary, 9, chemist, to 14, legal administrator, and finally 16, 17 and 18, high-level administrators. In the construction business, there's a social hierarchy of jobs, with dirt work or mere excavation at the bottom, the making of sewers, roads and tunnels in the middle, and work on buildings, the taller, the higher, at the top. Those who sell executive desks and related office furniture know that they and their clients agree on a rigid class hierarchy. Desks made of oak are at the bottom. Those of walnut are next. Then moving on up, mahogany is, if you like, upper middle class, until we arrive finally at the apex, teak. In the army, at ladies' social functions, Pouring the coffee is the prerogative of the senior officer's wife because, as the ladies all know, coffee outranks tea. There seems no place where hierarchical status orderings aren't discoverable. The former socialist and editor of the Partisan Review, William Barrett, looking back 30 years, 
concludes that, quote, the classless society looks more and more like a utopian illusion. The socialist countries develop a class structure of their own. Although there, he points out, the classes are very largely based on bureaucratic toadying. Since we are bound to have classes in any case, why not have them in the more organic, heterogeneous and variegated fashion, indigenous to the West? End quote. And since we have them, why not know as much as we can about them? The subject may be touchy, but it need not be murky forever. How many classes are there? The simplest answer is that there are only two, the rich and the poor, employer and employed, landlord and tenant, bourgeois and proletariat. Or, to consider manners rather than economics and politics, there are gentlemen and there are cads. The number sociologists seem to favour is five. Upper, upper middle, middle, lower middle, and lower. And trying to count the classes, some people simply give up, finding, like John Brooks in Showing Off in America of 1981, that, quote, in the new American structure, there seemed to be an almost infinite number of classes, end quote. One thing to get clear at the outset is this. It's not riches alone that defines classes. It can't be money, one working man says quite correctly, because nobody ever knows that about you, for sure. Style and taste and awareness are as important as money. Quote, Economically, no doubt, there are only two classes, the rich and the poor, says George Orwell. But socially, there is a whole hierarchy of classes, and the manners and traditions learned by each class in childhood are not only very different, but, this is the essential point, generally persist from birth to death. It is very difficult to escape, culturally, from the class into which you have been born. End quote. When John Fitzgerald Kennedy, watching Richard Nixon on television, turned to his friends and horror-struck said, The guy has no class. He was not talking about money. And that's where we'll leave it tonight. I think you can tell from the quality of that material that this is a little treasure of a book to be read and really to think about. Also, the book is filled with illustrations. So really, I can't recommend this book highly enough. Go shopping for it. Your bookshelf will thank you. Fussell really was quite arch in his writing. In fact, Fussell was often compared with H.L. Mencken, a compatriot writing arch, witty, snipey essays in the early 20th century. Long-time listeners of this pod will recall that Mencken has already made an appearance, all the way back in Episode 6. Check it out if you haven't already. If Fussell is to be compared with another voice, I submit that voice would be Frank Zappa. Bear with me here as I draw a very long bow. In 1981, Frank Zappa released a song, You Are What You Is. That's two years before Fussell's class, right? And it contains the following lyrics. Do you know what you are? You are what you is. You is what you am. A cow don't make ham. 
You ain't what you're not. So see what you got. You are what you is. And that's all it is. I love that track. And it was quite popular for Zappa. So it's probable, certainly possible, that Frank Zappa's song was on Fussell's mind as he wrote his book. Because Fussell's theory of class is that it is what it is. It's not wrong. It's not right. It's just a caste, and it's possible to live outside it as a Category X person, if you wish. Zappa was a Category X person. I like to think I am too. I'm certainly Generation X. I think today, in the 21st century, more and more of us are Category X. We are what we is, and that's okay. We make our own way in the world. We don't let things hold us back. We listen to some Jordan Peterson. We learn to clean our room and make the best of our lives. Living as a Category X outside of a class system is not a bad way to be. And I like to think Mr. Fussell, now RIP, would agree. Okay, join me next time when I read a brilliantly written confession from 16th century England spoken by the confessor over and over again, but she never wrote it. Till then, take care. It's slippery out there, and thanks for listening to Nitty Read.